Let's pray. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For the sake of your Son, our Savior. Amen. Let me begin by asking, did anyone make a New Year's resolution? Seriously, any? Nobody? Okay, I see one hand, a couple, maybe a couple of hands. I don't typically make them myself, but I'm afraid a New Year's resolution was made on my behalf. You see, I had a checkup at the doctor's a couple of months ago. It was all good. It was all good. I'm happy to report. But the doctor did tell me that I am not well hydrated enough. In other words, I'm not drinking enough water. How much is enough? He told me two liters a day minimum. And although, as a red-blooded American, I often have trouble picturing amounts that are in metric units, I know what two liters looks like because I know what a two-liter bottle of Coke looks like. So you know what two liters of water looks like to me? It looks like entirely too much water. (laughs) It looks like way more water than yours truly is able to drink in a day. To make matters worse, he said, three liters of water wouldn't be too much. (laughs) I didn't quite believe him. And I promise, in in the parking lot on the way out, I'm Googling, can you drink so much water that it will kill you? because I was pretty sure that three liters was close to the danger zone. Well, I now know that it is not, Um, but I still thought, I can't do this. At least I thought that until Lisa gave me this Christmas gift of a giant adult sippy cup. You know what I'm talking about. It's this giant water bottle with a huge straw. This thing Let me tell you, when Jack climbed up that beanstalk and he saw the giant fee-fi-fo-fum, the giant had to put down this water bottle. It's a one-gallon water bottle, and one gallon, by the way, is about uh, 3.8 liters. My son Townsend tells me that this water bottle is called a judgment jug, and you gym rats out there, you carry these things around in the gym. But it's called a judgment jug because it has hourly markings on the side beginning at 7 a.m. and running down the side to 9 p.m. So you can compare the amount of water you've drunk up to that point in the day to see if you're behind schedule. If it's 2 in the afternoon and you've only drunk enough water for 10 in the morning, well, you are judged by this thing. And I don't like being judged, so I've been drinking a ridiculous amount of water since January 26th. In fact, I may have to excuse myself before the sermon is over. Just kidding, maybe. Um, So drinking a gallon of water is apparently my New Year's resolution. We'll see if it lasts. Given my personal history of keeping resolutions, however, you have reason to be skeptical. And of course, it's not just me. We humans tend to be really good at making resolutions. It's the follow-through that we struggle with. But, but here's one reason why Christian baptism 
is so good for us. And indeed, it's one reason we are observing this traditional Sunday of the Christian year, which is the first Sunday of the Epiphany season. It's called Baptism of the Lord Sunday. Today's sermon concentrates on two verses. John's objection to baptizing Jesus in verse 14 and the Father's words in verse 17. And I'll make two main points. What does baptism mean for Jesus? And what does baptism mean for us? And what will become clear during the sermon, I hope, is that baptism reminds us in a helpful way that being a Christian isn't mostly about anything that we have to do. In which case, if it were like that, something we had to do, like New Year's resolutions, we would likely fail and then feel guilty. And being a Christian is not supposed to be about feeling guilty because Jesus has taken away our guilt. Being a Christian is mostly about what has already been done for us. We have a hard time believing this, brothers and sisters. We have a hard time believing that our relationship with God depends far less on us than it does on God. Which is another way of saying we have a hard time with a relationship that's based on grace. For example, I was at a church conference one time and and this one particular church leader told this crowd of pastors, The heart of the gospel is to be the incarnation of Christ to others. The heart of the gospel is to be the incarnation of Christ to to others. Now, I assume by incarnation, this person meant that we're supposed to bear witness to Christ, to love other people with Christ-like love, to live in such a way that we remind the world of who Jesus is. And I am all for that. In fact, you may not know this, but when it was freezing cold the week before Christmas and the week after Christmas, there was a temporary shortage of warm places for the homeless population of Stevens County to gather in. And when we found out, immediately many people from our church said, we've got to do something. And leaders in this church, like Kathy Whitmire and Larry Weiss and David Simonez, among many others, were like, we've got to help. And they swung into action. They brought supplies. They opened up the youth building. Other people showed up to volunteer. It happened so quickly and with no fuss and with no hesitation. And I was proud of y'all. That's bearing witness to Christ. That's showing Christ-like love. That's reminding other people of Jesus. How can we do more of that? I love it. I want us to be all about that. So I don't disagree for one moment that we should be all about demonstrating Christ-like love. But what we do to love other people is always only because God first loved us. 1 John 4.19, it's always only because of what God did for us first. It's always only a response 
to what God has done. The gospel of Jesus Christ isn't mostly about anything we do. Therefore, the heart of the gospel can't be about something that we do. The heart of the gospel is about what God has done for us, the weak and helpless sinners that we are. And baptism perfectly illustrates this. To see this, let's look at verses 13 and 14. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Now it's easy to see why John the Baptist would object to baptizing Jesus. John has been preaching very fiery sermons, urging his listeners to repent of their sins and to turn back to God or else face God's judgment. Even now, he says in verse 10 earlier in the chapter, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. If you want to avoid judgment, John said, repent now and be baptized. Because baptism symbolizes, in part, the repenting of sins and the washing away of sins. And as John well knows, his cousin Jesus is literally the only human being who's ever lived who has no sin of which he needs to repent. So, so why would Jesus come to John to be baptized? And the answer is this. Because baptism represents much more than just repentance from sins and washing away of sins. It also symbolizes God's judgment and God's wrath. That is, God's justifiable anger towards sin. This is what John himself means in verse 11 when he talks about how the coming Messiah will baptize people with both the Holy Spirit and fire. This fire is the fire of God's judgment and wrath towards sin. But as far as John is concerned, this baptism of fire will be something that the coming Messiah, Jesus, will do to others. A baptism that he will force others to undergo. So now, by asking John to baptize him, Jesus is communicating something strange and unexpected, something that John himself wasn't expecting at all because John didn't look at Isaiah 52 and 53 and, and understand that this Messiah must also suffer and die for his people. John didn't understand that. Even though Jesus never sinned at all, even though Jesus doesn't deserve God's judgment and wrath, Jesus was signaling to John and to everyone else that he himself was going to endure God's judgment and wrath for sins, for our sins, in our place. He's going to be our substitute. So in submitting to John's baptism, Jesus is giving us a symbolic sneak preview of what he will do for us on the cross. In case you're still not convinced, Consider these words of Jesus in Luke 12, 49 to 50. Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. 
Jesus is speaking with what's called Semitic parallelism. That is, he's saying the same thing twice using different words and phrases. The Psalms and the prophets in the Old Testament do this all the time. So Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. Those are words of God's coming judgment and wrath, which the Messiah will bring. So far, so good. That's very much in keeping with what John the Baptist preached. But then, as a way of referring to the same thing, using different words, Jesus talks about an upcoming baptism. Not the baptism that he underwent in today's scripture. That's already happened. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. And this future baptism of Jesus, of course, is what Jesus will experience on the cross. This future baptism is Christ's substitutionary death on the cross. So yes, by all means, the Messiah Jesus has come to bring the fire of God's wrath and judgment. But here's the twist, and here's what John himself failed to understand at this point. The Messiah Jesus would, would himself stand in our place and endure God's judgment and wrath for our sin so that we could be saved from it. We deserve the kind of God-forsaken death that Jesus died on the cross. Not Jesus. We deserve the hell that Jesus experienced when he descended into hell. But Jesus is going to be our substitute. And that's point number one. That's what baptism primarily means for Jesus. Point number two, what does baptism mean for us? This will take the rest of the sermon. Consider this. When John objected to Jesus's request for baptism, when John asked, why would you ask me to baptize you? It was exactly equivalent to his saying, why would you die for me, Jesus? Why would you endure the wrath of God for my sins, Jesus? Why would you take my place on the cross, Jesus? You're not the one who deserves the cross. I do. Why would you suffer like this? And the answer must be, Jesus must really, really love us. He must really love us. To say the least, baptism is a powerful reminder of how much God loves us. And you're like, oh yeah, please, that's so obvious, Pastor Brent. But do we really, do we really grasp how much we are loved by God? Do we, do we begin to comprehend this love. Sometimes I wonder. I referred to this last week in my newsletter and in my Bible study, so bear with me if you've heard it, but I'm going to add a little bit to it. But, but last week on New Year's Eve, a fellow pastor I know tweeted the following. He said, I am not sad to see the end of this year. It has been a hard one. Here is to happier days. First, I'm sure we can all sympathize. While I personally didn't experience 2022 in that way, 
I've known my share of difficult times. We all have. So I feel for this pastor. But even still, as a Christian, I'd sure want to say more than what he said in this tweet. And the first and most important thing I'd want to say is this. While I'm sure 2022 was hard for this man, it was only as hard as God wanted it to be for him. After all, nothing happened to him or to any of us in the previous 12 months that God in his sovereign love for his children didn't allow to happen for his children's ultimate good. Romans 8.28, among many other scriptures, makes this point. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things for those who are called according to his purpose. Not some things, all things. Maybe it will take years for this pastor to see what God was up to in this very difficult year of 2022. Or maybe he'll only see it in eternity. Who knows? after he gets to heaven. But someday, God's good purposes, even for this difficult year of 2022, will become clear to this man. But here's what I believe. If this pastor could only see right now all the good that God was accomplishing for him, all the good that God was working in him and through him and for him, even in the midst of this difficult year of 2022, then I believe this pastor would fall on his knees and thank God and praise God and glorify God for this past year. He would not say, here's to better days. Because the days of 2022 were exactly as good or as bad or as easy or as hard as they should have been. And they were already far better than he or anyone else can imagine. After all, does this pastor not believe that God is a perfectly loving father? Does he imagine that God, his father, loves him less than a typical human father loves his own children? That's what's at stake here. What human father wouldn't do his very best for his children, assuming the father has the power, the ability, the money, the resources to do so? What human father would fail to give his children what's best for them? What human father wouldn't act in his children's best interest? No, Even a sinful human parent typically loves their children more than life itself and would always do their best for them if they're able. Do we dare think that God our Father would do less than that for his own children? And if a father gives the very best gifts that he can give to his child, should that child turn around and say, these aren't good enough? I don't want these. You can do better, Father. Perish the thought. Jesus makes this point himself when he says in Matthew 7, 11, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Even when we can't see what God is up to, 
or how he's working good in the midst of difficult circumstances, we're supposed to trust our Father. We're supposed to say, I know God has got something good for me in this, even if I can't know what it is right now. I know that whatever God is doing in my life right now, he's doing out of perfect love for me, even if it's incredibly hard. Now, I'm not saying for a moment that we passively accept whatever is happening by no means if we don't like what God is currently giving us what God is currently allowing to happen in our lives we need to pray and if God gives us what we pray for then we can be sure that even praying these prayers and watching these prayers get answered was for our own good God wanted to bring us to a place where we would pray these prayers. As the great 19th century English Baptist pastor Charles Spurgeon said, anything that causes us to pray is a blessing. (laughs) Anything that causes us to pray is a blessing. Consider Jesus in today's scripture. The Holy Spirit descends on him in verse 16. And then in verse 17, he hears the voice of his father. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That sounds like God the father couldn't love his son more, right? The father couldn't be prouder of Jesus. The father couldn't be more pleased with him. Now look at the next verse, the very next verse. We didn't read it. If you have your Bibles, and you should look at it, because you won't believe me if you don't see it with your own eyes. After Jesus hears his father say these words, the very next verse, then Jesus was led by the devil, by no means, by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Brothers and sisters, it wasn't in spite of the fact that Jesus was God's beloved son, in spite of the fact that the father was well pleased with him, that Jesus had to endure the most difficult 40 days he'd ever experienced up to that point. It was because Jesus was God's beloved son, because God was well pleased with him. God the father was not powerless to prevent his son from being tempted by the devil. The father didn't say, I wish my beloved son didn't have to go through all this hard stuff, but I don't have the power to prevent it from happening by no means. Look at Matthew 4.1. It says that the Spirit himself, the Holy Spirit himself, who is God, the third person of the Trinity, led Jesus, led Jesus into this incredibly difficult period of temptation. And of course, the Holy Spirit will go on leading Jesus every step of the way for the next three years of his ministry and lead him up those incredibly uh, difficult steps to the hill called Calvary, lead him up those incredibly difficult steps to the cross. To say the least, none of the hard stuff that Jesus had to endure was in spite of the Father's love. It was always only because of the Father's love. God never loves his children in spite of anything. Do we believe that? This is, this is advanced Christianity, brothers and sisters, but this is what God's word teaches us. Do we believe that? 
as one newsworthy example. God doesn't love Damar Hamlin in spite of whatever caused his heart to stop beating during last Monday's game between the Buffalo Bills and the Cincinnati Bengals. In case you didn't hear, Damar Hamlin is the 24-year-old Bills safety who suffered cardiac arrest after what appeared to be a routine tackle. At this moment, I am relieved to hear about Hamlin recovering. Um, Of course, we we don't know whether he'll be able to resume his NFL career, even if he wants to. There are many unknowns at this point. But God's love for Hamlin is not in spite of this terrible, tragic thing that happened last Monday. And if, God willing, Hamlin is able to continue to recover, when he reaches the end of this incredibly difficult year of 2023, I bet he will tweet out something like this. This was the hardest year of my life, but I thank God for it. Look at how God loved me through this incredibly difficult time. Hamlin, like everyone else who places faith in Jesus, is a beloved child of God. And he will have seen the power of God at work through these incredibly difficult circumstances. And he will have seen God at work through his teammates and coaches and fans. I mean, Last Monday night, you had an ESPN broadcaster being beamed around the country and around the world, leading other ESPN broadcasters in prayer on national TV. To God be the glory. Coach Mike was talking to me about this Wednesday. He's never seen anything like it. I've never seen anything like it. All of a sudden... Everybody seemingly has their priorities in order. Suddenly, people are showing what matters most in this moment of crisis. And it's not a football game, and it's not politics, and it's not the economy. It's our Lord Jesus, and it's his Father. That's what matters most, and we saw an example of that last Monday night. But God forbid... If things go in the opposite direction, if worst comes to worst and Hamlin doesn't recover, if the healing that so many millions of people in this country and around the world have been praying for happens not in this world, but in the world to come, if Hamlin soon leaves this world to be with Jesus in paradise, well, I know this for sure. I know for sure that Hamlin will say, he'll say, I thank God for this incredibly difficult experience because what I have right now is infinitely better than anything else. Either way, Hamlin will look back on his experience And know for sure that God loves him. And he will see all the ways God was loving him even during that very difficult year of 2023. There won't be an in spite of. There will only be a because of. Because of God's love for Hamlin. Here's what God did. And so it is with us. When it comes to God's love 
There simply is no in spite of. Let's look again at verses 16 and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The Bible says that through faith in Christ and through the baptism that is its seal and symbol, a great exchange takes place. We give our sins to Christ and he suffers the punishment for them. And in return, he gives us his righteousness. The Bible says that through baptism, our life becomes connected to Christ. So that what's true of Jesus somehow is now true of us. His death counts as our death. His righteousness counts as our righteousness. Just as he received the Holy Spirit, so we receive the Holy Spirit. Just as he is resurrected, we will be resurrected and we enjoy new life now. Just as the Father tells him, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, so our Father speaks those words to us, his adopted children. Our baptism says, You're now part of God's family. You're now part of, you're you're now God's beloved son or God's beloved daughter because of your faith in Christ. And God is well pleased with you. God is giving his favor to you. In fact, it may be helpful to review some of God's promises to us, all of which are confirmed, sealed, and symbolized by our baptism. As I just said, We are highly favored sons or daughters of our Heavenly Father, chosen by Him to be His child before the foundation of the world, adopted into His family through faith in Christ. Our Father chose each of us to be His treasured possession. Our Father has numbered every hair on our heads. He values us so much. He promises only to give us good gifts. He promises only to give us what we need. He promises always to be on our side. He promises that because he's for us. Nothing or no one can ultimately be against us. He promises that he loves us, his children, exactly as much as he loves his only begotten son, Jesus. He promises to work all things in the universe together for our good. So point number two, what does baptism mean for us? It means God will keep all of these promises. Can I get an amen? Surely one reason God has given us this outward, visible, tangible, physical sign of baptism is because the inward, spiritual, eternal, invisible reality doesn't always or often seem so obvious. Christ gave us baptism in part because he knows that we get so easily distracted by our feelings, misdirected by our feelings, diverted from our path by our feelings, depressed by our feelings. Jesus gave us the sign of baptism because our feelings can so often deceive us. Baptism tells us By contrast, it doesn't matter how I feel at this moment. 
What matters is that God has done this subjective thing within me. He's given me saving grace. He's given me new birth. He's made me a part of his family forever. And even though I can't see it, and I can't always feel it, it's real. It's solid. It's substantial. It's substantial as this water is. And it changes everything. And I can know for sure that God has done all of these things within me Not by how different I feel right now, because feelings are unreliable, but because of my outward, visible, tangible, and physical baptism. My baptism happened, even if I was just a little baby at the time. There were witnesses to observe it. My parents were there. My family was there. My church family was there. My friends were there. It happened. Well, guess what? So did my salvation. So did God's gift to me of eternal life. So did the great exchange of my sin for Christ's righteousness. So did becoming a part of God's family forever. So did receiving the Holy Spirit. So did God's declaration of, over me. You, even you, Brent White, <laughs> are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. These things happened. Can we even comprehend that kind of love that God has for us? And when you come to this font, as I'm inviting you to do in a moment during this closing song, I invite you to touch the water And to tell yourself something like this, God's love for me and all that that love entails and all the promises God gives me are at least as real and substantial as this water that that I can touch and that I can see and that I can hear. God's love, His promises, they're as real as this. So, brothers and sisters, remember your baptism and be thankful. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're in the Tacoa, Georgia area, I hope that you will come and worship with us at Tacoa First. We have live, in-person worship every week, and we also have online worship. Please see tacoafirstumc.org for more information.